this is Teach Air, where your airwaves are taken over by two teachers who want to talk about teaching, the joys of working with children, the pains of a broken photocopier, and news and issues within the world of education. Teach Air aims to connect teachers with teachers. Morning Jade and welcome everyone to episode four of the Teach Air podcast. Today we're going to be looking at um, balancing the scales, how we can create an effective work-life balance. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, doing great, thank you. What have you spotted this week? Anything interesting? Yeah, so actually the Department for Education, so that's our UK government um, education workload, they have had a look at how teachers can save effective amount of time in their working life by reducing marking now this is something that I think is probably hot on most teachers minds because we all know that we've spent a lot of time marking I know at times in year six for me I've spent 15 hours a week marking especially you know when you've got a maths paper where you've got you know 4,000 questions to mark between a whole class so they looked at removing written all forms of written marking from teachers across 14 schools so it worked out as teachers and they found that in removing that written workload pressure and going to direct feedback progress improved for children but also it's it reduced the amount of time teachers spent on task all tasks in their teaching career and in their sort of administrative life down from around two hours to 30 minutes imagine what you can do with an extra an hour and a half saved it's brilliant a day it's huge it's my commute time to work called for and the two key things there you know the, the two biggest things that I always think about are you know what's the impact on children and then what's the impact on me and it helps in both ways so that sounds fantastic one of the things I noticed with remote learning and I, I forgot to say it in the episode that we did on that actually is uh, how much better I've found it being able to to mark um, through typing or actually just having that written uh, feedback removed it, it was a it felt so much better and I don't think I noticed too much of a negative impact in terms of the children's development so uh, that's kind of an anecdotal little bit of evidence to support that research that's been done so that's great yeah I'd say so and I think in my experience I've, I've always worked in schools where they favor quite deep marking and I can definitely see a place for deep marking in terms of for me I could very much see where my children were going where they'd come from where the misconceptions were but I, I do feel like I trust my own teacher do- judgment that I'd be able to see that just from looking at the work and not heavily marking it Um, I'm a m- massive fan on direct feedback as I can and I'll, I'd rather be zipping across a classroom than sat in one place or at one table at any time and um, the school I've just joined actually don't have a precedence for written marking so I'm interested to see where that will go and when I've spoken to teachers in the past week there they've spoken very highly of how much they can get done with the children being able to just tackle things directly as they go. It's something that comes up over and over again from teachers about how much time is spent marking and I think even just by the fact by acknowledging it and trying to do something about it you know all of a sudden teachers start to feel like they're being listened to as well so there's that side of it as well which goes with um, you know just how teachers are feeling generally about the fact that people maybe above are not necessarily always trying to help them with their quite often passing things down extra for them to do if we can start to see things being done that that try and sort of uh, act upon things that we've we've asked for then I think that will sort of develop well-being and self-esteem which we talked about towards the end of, of episode three 
I reckon so. I think teacher trust is something that can often be missing. And I find it really interesting because I don't think there are many careers where you are educated to a master's level and still aren't afforded a level of trust in your career. Um, and I think that's something that goes hand in hand with, again, like you say, allowing us to know what we want and allowing us to act on that. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a, a lovely little link into kind of bridging between last week's episode and this week's episode. We talked towards the end of episode three about how we've had to sacrifice quite a lot of our personal mm -hmm. lives in order to be an effective teacher. And today we're going to look at how to establish a, a work-life balance. And it's um, it's a great pleasure for me today because it's our first Qatar-based guest and it's actually Dan that's going to be joining us. Um, obviously living with Dan for the last three years, I've got a really close uh, relationship with him uh, he is somebody that in our school I would say probably has the biggest workload he's a year six teacher right he's um, got extra responsibility because he leads on our, our what we call houses so every child uh, is in a house and he runs competition in fact he set the whole thing up he, we do weekly house points that he has to manage and, and prizes and competitions all the time so he's got that extra responsibility he also organizes the school production each year which is a massive thing in our school uh, and he's moving into a position of leadership as, as a head of year six next year as well. But one of the things I have um, a huge ad admiration for for Dan is his efficiency. He's, he's a bit like you in the sense that he gets stuff done way, way, way yeah. before deadlines. Um, and he, he's somebody who does seem to be able to strike that balance between working really hard and he's a, he's a wonderful professional, but also finding time to, to switch off and he, he seems to lead a uh, fulfilling personal life so I'm excited to find out how he does that because I know it's something mm -hmm. I've struggled with um, in the past although it's slightly better now it's still something that I can look to improve um, and I'm sure there's lots of teachers out there who feel the same as me. Yeah I'm looking forward to that especially because I think work-life balance is um, an overarching teacher issue I think it's definitely prevalent in NQTs but I think as in life you know we all develop deeper commitments to things in life and we all lead busy lives as it is and I think developing a solid work-life balance is something across the age groups for teaching that I think we all have had or still struggle with so it'd be great to speak to Dan. Yeah I completely agree and I think it's about time we introduce the main man himself what do you reckon? Let's bring him on. As mentioned in the introduction the Dan Hockley to our Teach Air podcast today, the first Qatar-based guest, which is really exciting for me. How are you, Dan? I'm very well, thank you. How are, how are you both? Yeah, very good, thank you. How's the flat? I'm missing it. Uh, it it's quiet. Yeah. And, and incredibly hot. But hey, yeah, I can imagine. Weather's not been so good here, I'm afraid. Absolutely. Uh, I was hoping you could just just giving us a little bit of a background into you your history and teaching um how you've ended up in Qatar that type of thing yeah of course yeah um so teaching was always kind of on the cards for me uh mum works in a school setting and kind of always saw myself kind of going down that route um didn't expect it to happen as early as it did like I had big plans of being on the stage and everything and then a little bit later on kind of thinking about going into teaching but Alas, that didn't actually work out for me. So I started, um, uh, I went for my teacher training and initially I uh, applied for secondary drama um, and was accepted onto a PGC there at Central School of Speech and Drama. Um, so did that, um, didn't get a job at the end of that year. So had a bit of a gap year, did a bit of supply, 
Um, and a friend of mine who did secondary music ended up doing primary supply. And it was through her that she was like, Dan, I think, I think you'd love this. Um, so here's the contact details for the agency that she worked with. And then I signed up and then the rest is history. I ended up doing my PGC, uh, my NQT year um, at a one form entry school in Bethnal Green, uh, which was amazing. I stayed there for three years, did year four for two and then went up into year five and then left there to a school in Aldgate, um, still East London, uh, where I stayed for two years. And that's where I started in year six. And then I kind of got a bit, I needed a, needed a bit of a change of scenery and that's why I ended up in Qatar. And then, so I've just finished my third year in Qatar in year six for all three years. I'm about to start my fourth year in year six, um, which is a long time in year six. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's how I'm where I am. It certainly is a long time in year six. And you had an interesting experience with Ofsted when you very first started. Oh yeah, Ofsted in the first week. So um, being, <laughs> being an NQT, stepping inside a primary classroom for kind of I hadn't I I'd, I'd probably did about 10 days of supply in primary and then getting the call from Ofsted on the third day in September uh was a baptism of fire to say the least um Absolutely. they were in two days and it was it was mad absolutely mad in a one elementary school there being four NQTs it was um interesting to say the least a good learning curve and um, um, this episode, go on, go on, sorry, Dan. Oh, no, no, I was definitely a learning curve, that's for sure. Yeah, and this, this episode, Dan, uh, as you know, is all about establishing a work-life balance. So I was wondering as well if you could just talk about some of the things you do uh, away from teaching as well in your spare time, in your free time. Yeah, of course. Um, so I am uh, a keen hockey player, and so I've been playing hockey for years, and so I'm part of a, well, in London, I was part of a club, and then here in Qatar, part of a, a social kind of knockabout. Um, I enjoy kind of like doing drama and everything. And so kind of have done bits of Amdram here and there. Um, then baking, doing yoga, going to the gym, the usual sort of things going out. Um, I have a, not that it's happened much this past year, but um, in the two years, first two years here, I had a thing called Cocktail Club which was every week going for a different happy hour around Doha. There are enough bars to be able to do a different one each week. Um, so, yeah. Excellent. And I think, yeah, I think with, um, with the episode today, it's fair to say that educators are facing an increasing struggle when it comes to managing the workload. As we discussed on our previous episode, uh, there's an expectation that we sacrifice our personal lives in order to fulfill work commitments. And it was Josh Quinn last week who alluded to the fact that it's very easy for us as teachers to accumulate upward of 70 hours in a working week. And that's why we want to explore this issue um, of work-life balance with you today, Dan, as somebody who I admire for their ability to be exceptionally efficient uh, in the classroom, but also enjoy your enjoy your time away from school, which is what I've, I've sort of learned from, from living with you over the past couple of years. But I thought I'd start by sort of saying, well, what does work-life balance mean to you? And perhaps if we come to you, uh, Jade first and then to Dan second, to just kind of outline what, what this phrase sort of means for, for you. Absolutely. Um, I'd say, to be honest, um, from the very beginning, I didn't think that I could have a work-life balance as a teacher. Um, I definitely went in all guns blazing in a way and very easily, like um, Josh said, gave 70 plus hours a week to my job and 
I thought for me that meant that I was being the best teacher that I was and it was only until I had quite a life-changing um, relationship change it was massive it changed the whole course of my life really to where I am now that I started to think if I'm not a teacher who I, who else am I um, so for me work-life balance is having a balance of Miss Norman the teacher and Jade as the person and for me it's waking up and knowing that within my day even if I'm in school because I tend to go in early from about seven to about five I like to do that I still have several hours in the day where I'm dedicated to doing something for myself and um, I'm not necessarily one of those people who believes in self-care as being like having a bath and um, for me that sort of practice of um, balance and self-care is doing something that makes me feel inherently good so that for me is having a gym routine that's seeing my friends throughout the week and the weekends because I think for me if I can have plans on a Tuesday or a Thursday I've cracked my work-life balance and that balance isn't just for the weekend. Excellent and Dan what, what does this term sort of mean for you? Um, I, th- I think I agree everything with what um, Jade has just said. Uh, I think when you first go into teaching I'd never even really thought about the phrase work-life balance. It was I was starting a job and I wanted to do the best that I possibly could mm-hmm. and so yeah it's so easy to then just rack up the hours um like there's there's always more that you can do in teaching there's always little things that you can tweak um and it wasn't really until I think it was when I left the first school because I like my first school was a great learning school but the expectations there were so incredibly high that when I actually then went to the second school it was the head teacher who was actually saying no and he was chasing staff out and being like no, you need to go home no you are not taking those books home with you they are still going to be there in the morning. Uh, everything is still going to happen tomorrow. So go, go out, go, go for a drink. Like let's, let's go to the pub. And it was only then that I kind of started to think that actually, yeah, I need to kind of give myself some time and kind of have that cutoff point of being like, right. So that is, I've done enough now for this week or today. Um, now it's time to have a bit of time for, for me, whether or not that's just sat, on the sofa watching some Netflix uh, box set or whether or not that is going out for, for drinks or doing the sport or just having an early night. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think, you know, work-life balance is something that we he- hear about all the time, particularly in, in education, but in, in other jobs as well. Uh, my, my next question really is, is why do you think this has become such a big issue? Because the, it's probably the phrase I hear most in terms of, you know, people talking about what they're struggling with. So, um, again, if we, if we come to you first this time, Dan, why do you think this has become such a big issue? I think it, do- it doesn't help with the, um, the expectations that are kind of put on us from people who are not in the classroom. Um, I think that teaching is something that we, we all want to, we go into teaching to make a difference on children's lives. And based on like what, what I was, where I was teaching in London, uh, it wasn't just necessarily about the things that I was teaching, the, the knowledge and everything, but actually about the pastoral stuff that was part of it. And there's always more that you can do. There's always things. It might be that I need to bring in some extra snacks because I've got children who um, are are not eating enough breakfast. And so they're coming into school with like half asleep because they've not eaten enough. And you've got all of these things. It's not necessarily actually just about the planning um, and everything that goes on around it, but it's everything else. Like teaching is your life. And at some point you need to be able to kind of switch off, but it doesn't help when there are new initiatives that are brought in all the time. You've got Ofsted breathing down your neck, especially like in, in the UK, that you need to be 
seen to be doing everything all the time it there's it doesn't seem like that you're allowed to go into like drop down from fifth gear to fourth gear it, it seems that you have to keep going going and going otherwise people are going to start to question you as a teacher and you as a professional is that something you would agree with jade it is it taps into the idea that we you go into teaching not to teach the curriculum you go in to teach children and to develop children um, and to provide them with a foundation. And I think Dan's right, we're heavily pastoral. And, you know, it's not always explicitly set out the sort of pastoral um, approaches that we have to use. But I think you go in and you see these children who, you know, potentially have difficult lives or maybe just don't and just need that little bit more time and attention from us. And I think it's very easy to want to build up everything you do whether that's your lesson planning whether that's the feedback you give whether that's you know even just your displays around the classroom and the initiatives that you offer and getting involved in extra clubs and PTA it's because we want our children to have the best possible time ever I think most teachers go into teaching having had a fairly positive experience themselves if that makes sense and I think for me I definitely know that I approach teaching with a, well, I loved school and I want other children to love it too and I want other children to feel safe. But I think it, Dan's also right in that people outside of the education profession don't always realise how much time everything that we do takes. So it's very easy to build up the hours and build up what we need to do. Yeah, I completely so, agree. Definitely what do you reckon? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and, you know, I think we a lot of the time teachers good nature and, and desire to, to see children um, be the best that they can be is, is sort of taken for granted or um, mm. is used to to just expect that we will do more. Um, and, and I think that's wrong, really. You know, we, we should be being supported uh, to maintain uh, the work-life balance because as we talked about last week when, when we are not feeling good ourselves when the balance is wrong and we are only working and we're not the best version of ourselves well actually it impacts on our performance as teachers anyway when we are feeling happy we we, we are better teachers so uh, yeah there's definitely more that can be done to kind of support that but in terms of, of what we do that you know the main question we want to answer today is how can we create a, a, and establish a work-life balance and as I've already alluded to a couple of times Dan, you're somebody who, who I believe does this exceptionally well. So if we start with you, what are your kind of ways that you go about creating this work-life balance? Uh, I think it is, for me, it is definitely about trying to be as efficient as possible in the school day. Um, especially since moving to Qatar, I really try to not take anything home. And yeah, there, there are days when you have to do stuff at home, but... I really desperately try to be that as soon as I've left the classroom, then that's it. And I can switch off and enjoy the rest of my evening. So some of the things that um, is they're, they're, they're the life hacks that kind of all teachers put, like do, like when you're in classes, like marking as you're going and you're giving verbal feedback and you're giving the, you're putting the things in the books that you need to put in um, to kind of appease leadership, but you're doing kind of, all the other bits, it's a lot more verbal stuff so that the children are getting the impact, but then leadership can see the um, the effects that you, you're having in the classroom. Um, one of the things that over the last couple of years we've kind of developed in year six, we've been using like whole class feedback and that absolutely changed everything um, that 
I thought was marking and because marking is the biggest thing uh, for teachers that kind of takes all of your time. And as soon as we started doing the whole class feedback, it just seemed to speed everything up. And there were you were able to hit on a lot more things rather than writing the same comment 20 times in 20 different books. And I'm writing the same thing again and then again and again. And you're not able to go into so much depth. The whole class feedback actually allowed us to do more with our feedback and target a lot more uh, groups and individuals through that. And it took an hour to mark a whole set of books rather than three hours like you know like in year six when you've when you've got um you've done an extended piece of writing and they've all written two pages at least you're like how am i going to get through 30 books of two pages this has just sped up the whole thing um and so like th things like that and it's it's like then using twitter and using kind of other um platforms to explore and find what other teachers are doing and and, and magpie and like we, we tell the kids to magpie um, ideas so like as professionals that's what I feel that we should be doing more as well kind of like finding ways that we can not cut corners but you know kind of just make it a bit more um, align everything a bit better so that we can be a bit more efficient within the classroom something I completely agree with it was in my notes to kind of to talk about today about the idea of sharing resources and sharing things that that have been created I think sometimes teachers can be quite precious over over their own what they created themselves either for fear of being judged or uh you know teachers are generally quite humble people who maybe don't don't understand how good the stuff is that they're producing so that was something that i was going to put in as well as a, as a tip you know in terms of if there's something out there that's already been done and it's been done well you can either take it and adapt it because that that's quicker than just creating your own stuff. If we're all constantly creating our own stuff, we're not making it any easier for e each other. So that was a point that I definitely had in there as well. There was something that I recently that uh, from Teaching for Mastery. Uh, and this book was like, teaching's been around for hundreds of years, yet every teacher every year insists on doing their own thing. We've got all these people that have come before us and have made these amazing resources. And yeah, you should tweak it, but it's not about reinventing the wheel. But it kind of like used this... Um, idea of that well doctors don't go into surgery and go like oh i'm gonna try and fix this heart i've never done it before i'm gonna re i'm gonna invent my own way of doing it all of these methods have been tried and tested by umpteen professionals beforehand that actually we should be using that and just tweaking it for our classes yeah and it gives us that power and that ownership we you know we're gonna you know take ownership of of our work-life balance, we're going to be actively trying to to cut down on the things that we do rather than being passive and, and letting everything by, be directed from people uh, above us. What are your thoughts on this, Jade? Um, I just want to build off from what Dan said because I, I agree it's so easy to want to produce your own things to kind of give ownership over like this is what I can do but I think tweaking is the absolute best thing you can do because again, we don't need to be reinventing the wheel. The wheel exists. We, we might want to, yeah, we you know, create some additions to it but I'd say that especially when we were together Martin in our old school there wasn't a day gone by where we weren't sharing a resource or passing it through or going I've photocopied enough for you um, and I very much trusted what you were creating and I think the world has never been smaller it's so easy for us to find resourcing and ideas from across the world from so many excellent practitioners and why wouldn't we benefit from that but on a, a flip side of it I'd say is that I am not a big fan of teacher Twitter personally um for me I just found like it made me feel a bit guilty in that you know you can always do more and there are some people very happy to 
dedicate their time outside of school to passing on things and to creating relationships but for me I found I, I could never switch off so for me I had to step away from teacher twitter because it just made me feel like I wasn't good enough sometimes yeah I think that was uh, I watched a little video with um, Mr P who's quite a quite a well-known social media um, teacher and he sort of talks about over the summer how he reduces his use of social media particularly in the summertime so he doesn't have those feelings of guilt when people are still posting things that they're doing and oh look how I've laminated my classroom during the summer holidays and how that can create a sense of guilt that you're not working um mm. so there's there's a, I think there's definitely you know an abundance of resources out there that we can go and find but it's it's about when is the right time to kind of be on social media and and probably you know when we're outside of school when we're in breaks and holidays that's maybe a good time to kind of reduce that and and sort of switch the accounts off for a little bit yeah I think that idea of knowing when works for you is great because what I was about to build on was the fact that I know having taught for years now when my efficient times are I know I'm not good at working after school I know as soon as the children have left I've got to go and have like a 40 minute wander of the corridor to speak to people because I've not spoken to an adult all day that's what I like so for me getting in at seven is perfect because I know between seven and half eight I am going to bosh everything out that I need to so that's my efficient time and I think knowing your own working times works well I know that I'm an early riser so that works for me I know you've been quite the same over the years um but I'd also say perhaps that for me rather than in the resourcing because I know in that hour and a half I can do an awful lot of resourcing if I want to for me the biggest impact on establishing work-life balance was actually teaching the children to become more independent because a lot of the time it wasn't necessarily my workloads that was a problem it could also be that I was spending so much time doing things that I shouldn't have had to have done um an example I've got is when I taught in Melbourne I had a very dependent set of boys who wouldn't even sharpen their own pencils when I arrived and these were nine and ten year olds and I was like absolutely not we need to fix this so for me it was really important to encourage a climate of independence and give them the strategies of I'm here to guide you I'm not here to give you the answers and I should be your last port of call Um, So things like the three B's before me, labelling my classroom to make it accessible to them, walking them around the classroom on the first day and going, if you need this, you can come here. Where would I go if I need this? Dictionary skills, massive. I shouldn't be spelling anything for you sort of thing. So I think my biggest impact for work-life balance was actually giving the children the responsibility for things they should be responsible for. Excellent. We've got some good stuff so far. And I think, you know, building that understanding of yourself and when you are efficient is great and uh, creating autonomy within the children and magpieing from other teachers uh, is a fantastic one. Whole class feedback, something that I've tried uh, recently in this year as well. And it does have a huge, a huge impact. Is there anything else, Dan, that you've kind of got in terms of the way you go about establishing a work-life balance? Um, well, I think Jade kind of picked up on it earlier as well, kind of saying that, making plans in the week as well so that you've got that time when you're just definitely putting that off to, to be for you um and so that is one thing that i always try to do is to make plans a couple of things through the week that is going and meeting people at somewhere whether it's for dinner or it's for coffee but having that as a deadline almost really helps to kind of then make sure that you get out on time you get home to freshen up do whatever you need to before you then go off and and socialize a bit so having those sorts of um 
blocked out time periods I think are really is really good as well to help with maintaining that work-life balance yeah I completely agree with that I think one of the great things we have at our school Dan is Evo isn't it so so Jade in our school there's a there's a company who run fit, fitness sessions like circuit training and things um for for adults um primarily staff they have a staff session that starts at about 2 30 2 45 each day um and i find that that's a fantastic thing for me to sign up for because then i know that everything that i ha- have on my list and i'll come to list in a minute everything that i have on my list needs to be done by then because i'm booked in for this session uh, and that's kind of my way of blocking off this is when i finish finish my school day and i've used it in two ways as well because they have a later session as well and some days i commit to a longer working day uh, and use the later session as as when i sort of need to have everything done as well so i think that's a, a really a good a good point as well about making plans um, because if you've got something where you need to be finished by it kind of increases that efficiency um, because you have to get things done i'd also yeah. say it just makes you that better teacher anyway i'd say that i'm all, i've been a much happier teacher since I started allowing myself to do things so I'm really big on going to the gym you know in the school week I like to go four times I go Monday Wednesday Friday 6am that works massively for me Um, I've you know developed some hobbies and one of my big non-negotiables is I like to go to the cinema once a week I'm a big fan of the Odeon Pass or the Cineworld Pass sort of thing and I I, you know, years ago, I would have felt really bad for that. But actually, I go into school so much happier now and I've done something for me before then. Yeah, it's that that constant sense of, of guilt that we kind of need to try and help people remove. I think teachers often feel guilty if you're, if you're in the cinema or if you're at the gym or if you're doing the Evo class, you know, especially for us, Dan, when we do those Evo classes and there's other teachers around the school who are still yeah. working, you can have that, that sense of guilt that I'm not working, but understanding that all of this is actually aimed at making you better as a person therefore a better teacher I think can help to remove that guilt one of the things I wanted to chip in with is um is lists because I've become a big fan of the list over certainly over remote learning period I read a book called um, eat that frog uh, which is amazing and basically all that signifies is kind of starting your day with the thing you want to do least so during remote learning, we had to write reports, which I know that all teachers don't necessarily look forward to. And so by putting that on my list as the first thing that I would do that day and getting that out of the way early, two or three reports, it kind of helped me increase my my efficiency. And so I've become a big fan of making a list, doing the things on the list and no more, making a new list for the next day. And I think that helps me kind of know what I need to do in that day. And then once those things are done, that's that's signal for me that actually now I can switch off and I can do some of the things away from work that that make me a better person yeah I think that's it and you know I've read Eat That Frog I think it's brilliant and I've currently got my partner listening to it as well but Eat That Frog is that concept of if there's something at the start of the day that you don't love do it first and if there's two tasks that you don't love you do the biggest one you eat the biggest frog first and I think it's I think it's you know it's something that if we could just tell all NQTs to read um, because as a, as far as a metaphor goes, it's perfect, isn't it? Yeah, no, for sure. And also, what that does is it builds habits as well. You know, we're all creatures of our habits, and if we can get into routines where this is how I start my day, uh, this is this is what I do. These are the habits that I have to get things done. I think that also helps as well. Because I'm I'm dreadful for sort of sitting there, you know, marking a book, maybe doing ten minutes on Instagram to check what people's plates of food look like, and you know, I'm just wasting. <laughs> wasting that time in the day and then that extends my day and I can't do the things that I want to do but by having 
the habits in place, getting the stuff done that I don't necessarily want to do first, it kind of helps me become uh, a lot more efficient. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of NQT's newly qualified teachers, Dan, I wonder if you had a piece of advice that either you wished you'd been given starting out your teaching journey in relation to work-life balance or advice that you'd give NQTs now, what would that be? Um, the, it's one of those things that I think it's difficult to, like the, the perfect lesson is something that we all strive for, but especially as NQTs, it's, I, I remember that my that NQT year and kind of spending an hour planning each lesson that I was teaching. And so I was spending as long planning as I would actually be teaching it. Um, and so having that kind of thing, like someone just saying that, look, it's enough. What you've got is enough. You are, you know, like I th- I th- it's almost like using the mentor and kind of like just being able to just say that you know what I've done what I can and I understand that perhaps it's not going to be perfect and that is okay um and so I think it's that kind of taking that um that not that ownership but you know that idea of that I know that it's not going to be perfect and that is fine because I'm still going to be effective I'm still going to have an impact in the class um what I have planned is good um and knowing when to take a step back from that I think that's that's important. And then I, I think what we've been saying as well, like making the plans as well, I think that's, if someone had said to me in that first year, make sure that you've got things planned, the deadlines, then that would that would have changed that year for me completely. Um, where do you think that pressure comes from to teach the perfect lesson? Because it's something that as a teacher, we'd never expect perfection of a child. You know, mm. we want them to make mistakes. We want them to show a development from the start of a lesson to an end. We want to see it um, development from the start of the year to the end of the year between terms etc where does that perfection pressure come from I think it comes from everything outside of schools like when you've got the you've got Ofsted you've got um the, like the government kind of coming bringing in these new initiatives uh you've got parents who are kind of asking questions all the time like why is my child not making progress and you're like well your child is making progress but the progress that I, I may be seeing a slightly different progress because it, it's it's that kind of um, pressure that we get from outside mm-hmm. of the classroom. And I think sometimes as well, like the the senior leaders within schools sometimes are have been like our amazing heads, but actually they've been out of the classroom for such a long time now that they've become, um, they've lost touch of what it is actually like to be in class. And so when they're like, all oh, right, so we're going to, we're going to bring this new initiative in this year because we want to really start going with this. And the thought hasn't actually been put into place about, well, actually, this is something that needs to take time. And it's it's not about being able to start straight away. But I think sometimes they forget that we need time to kind of learn a skill. We need time to learn a new way of doing things mm-hmm. that sometimes I think leadership can expect things too fast and don't allow us that time to kind of transition. And also, I think with that as well, is it's, it's making leadership uh, and school leaders need to make sure that they have uh, a strong understanding of what current best practice actually is so that everything that we are being asked to do, uh, they understand what it is that we're being asked to do, how long it's going to take, but actually what is the impact of it rather than just, you know, picking these different initiatives and and, and just going with them, actually analysing, well, what impact would it have in, in our setting? Because, you know, what works for, for Dan and I in, in our school it's totally different for what works for, for you and I in, in our school, Jade, when we were working together too, mm-hmm. totally different things. So actually 
you know, uh, reading, professional development, action research, those types of things that we've introduced in our school, um, making sure that those things that we do actually have an impact is really important um, in terms of, you know, helping us to have a manageable manageable workload. Um, but that, that pursuit of per- perfection is something that I struggled with for a long time, trying to get things done amazingly well, have the best PowerPoint slides, have the most detailed plans. Uh, and, you know, if, if I was starting again, just get stuff done is what I would say to me. Just get it done. It doesn't have to, like Dan says, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be done. See, I find that interesting that you say that because, you know, I witnessed your transition from being um, a teaching assistant to a student and then to an NQT. And then when you were, you know, recently qualified, we, you and I were placed together in the same year group. And you were actually someone who I almost felt like I had to pit myself against. And that sounds really bad and I don't mean it that way. But um, you all, what I always thought you did really well, which I now acknowledge that you probably didn't see, is that I always thought you prioritised, does it benefit the children? Yeah. I'll spend my time on it and does it benefit the children straight away no probably not well I'm not going to prioritize that but then you've obviously you've just said the opposite there but um that's what I found when I worked with you and then that made me want to chase being a better teacher when really I could have just gone here Martin this is how I'm feeling this is what I want to do let's work out a way to do this efficiently I think we we definitely had a bit of like a not a one-upmanship I'd say but I, I felt like I had to elevate myself yeah, to work it, at your it, level. It definitely, and and the more you surround yourself with great teachers, it's amazing because you're learning and developing all the time. But the, there is that if you haven't got the right culture in your school of of shit, like we talked about earlier, sharing and magpieing, then it can become a bit of like a competition of who who's doing the most. You know, I used to actually pride myself on the fact and. and that I was the first one into school and the last one out of the building. It used to be a sense of pride for me. And actually, you know, in that situation, I'm not helping anybody there because my circumstances were okay. I didn't have responsibility outside of school in terms of a family and things, but lots of the teachers did. And I was almost a little bit judgmental of them or oh, this guy's going at half three or this guy's going at four. And you look back on that now and you think that was, that was wrong. And I was adding, uh, I was adding to the, to other people's problems. Whereas we mm. should be all working together to kind of try and establish you know, uh, a culture whereby we share and, and we support and we uh, motivate. But I think probably when you're talking about um, me doing things for the benefit of the children, you're kind of alluding to the fact that I was fairly regularly in trouble for missing deadlines and not, not doing data. <laughs> so, um, yeah, for the sake of clarity there, I think there was a whole year where I'd attend staff briefings and then go back to Martin and tell him what had been said in briefings. But, um. Yeah. Do you know what? It's it's funny, really, isn't it? And I think that probably, I don't know if Dan agrees, we'll go to Dan in a second, that teaching can become very insular and you can become very self-conscious and you can want to better yourself against what you think someone else's better is. When really, if we just have that open culture and we're honest with each other, we probably would find that our work-life balance was much better anyway, purely for the fact that we would be reassured by others. Like, um, I will I, I keep this as like a fond memory it's probably a bit daft of me but um, on the day Martin left our old school he did this speech um, where he was finally in the staff room and he introduced himself again because so many people had not seen him for so long um, and you said to me you said about me you said um, you know I'll have this idea and I'll go to Jade about it and she'll pass me the resources because she's thought about it and already done it and at the time I was like oh he recognizes that I work really hard but then 
over time I was like why didn't we just speak to each other about that idea then if we had it and we could have shared that instead of it just being like a give and take because I do that from you some days and you, you know you do it from the other day it's like why didn't we just do it together yeah no and it's interesting that because in, in our in our current school where Dan and I work the, the planning is done collaboratively where that was completely new to me I, I we sort of we talked and we shared and, we, and we, we were probably the best at it in our school in terms of sharing mm-hmm. but we actually still did our own planning um and collaborative planning is only something that's come into into my practice since I since I moved schools. Yeah, I was um, my my first five years. I was in a one form entry, um, and so like the implications of that obviously is that you're planning every single lesson, um, and it wasn't a case that if you changed year group, the teacher before would have left the planning. There, that that wasn't there. Like you had to do everything again, which doesn't really support that idea of. Um, it's already been invented. It doesn't need to doesn't need to be redone. And so I, I found it like those first five years. I found it really hard. But then coming on the flip side of that, then when it was the collaborative planning, I found that really hard. Going on with what Joji was saying, like um, comparing yourself to Martin, and mm. um, that idea of like, well, oh, they're they're doing oh they're they're doing one of the core subjects. Why 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 am I not on the core subjects? And that then it's like oh their their powerpoints look amazing, or they're doing this, and oh they've done this amazing. Oh I need I need to spend more time. And it's actually only as I've kind of um, got used to that idea of the um, the collaborative planning. And we, we do t- like or in year six anyway, we've been doing a lot of team teaching. And that has really helped as well, because in the morning I'd go and talk to my partner teacher and we would just kind of be like, right, so are we are we going to work together for the lesson today? Are we coming like to my room or not? Or if not, how are you going to do this? And having that kind of professional dialogue in the morning and just clarifying ideas and just kind of making sure that we're on the right track especially if it's not your planning you want to make sure that you deliver it the best you possibly can and having those conversations is important so that you can feel confident about doing it without having to go back and go i need to replan this or i need to go and do do this and so that helped to kind of cut some of the the workload for for me yeah and one of the things we did uh just to just sort of build on that dan is in, in our year group this year we have a like a template for our PowerPoint slides and a performer which kind of says these are the key things that we need and it's kind of created a situation whereby our slides no matter who's doing them they look very very similar so that it kind of removes that oh this person's slides look amazing this person's now going to have to try and make them look like this this other person's slides where we just have you know and it, it's, it looks very basic but actually we bring it to life in the classroom because you know, we trust that the team are fantastic teachers. Um, and it, it just means that nobody has that pressure of having to produce the same as anybody else because our slides, through the use of the template, are quite basic uh, and just cover the key things that we need um, anyway. Yeah. That's all you really need. And, I, you know, something that my mum said to me years ago when I was a kid, you know, I went to a... There weren't many schools in our area and the school I went to was in the process of failing off said as I was leaving. Um and you know there's a distinct criticism of like what the classrooms looks like and what the sort of lessons looks like and my mum always said to me well you know Jade um the walls and the, the, the powerpoints aren't what teach the children and I think that's something I've always taken with me so like this pressure to have like a fancy slideshow is just not something I've ever really thought about so it's interesting that others obviously do because for me my mum hit it on the head it's that it's, you know it's what I'm delivering and yeah. what a sheet looks like that's important but obviously there is that external pressure which Dan's alluded to already if you know if someone's opening your books to scrutinize them you also want them to look good and part of that looking good is having the lovely sheets and the lovely fonts but 
at the end of the day, if we were to strip things back, it's the, one of the first things that I would say to let go of is, you know, there's no need for slides with fancy transitions and colours and there's no need to, you know, have fonts changed to match your sort of lessons persona and things like that. At the end of the day, a quality teacher is someone who puts their heart into the lesson, teaches your objectives, but delivers it in a way that's appropriate to the children. And in terms of impact as well, actually, if you, th- you know, I've done a little, I've done a little bit of reading this year on sort of working memory and cognitive load. And actually, you know, a lot of the research supports the idea that we shouldn't have too much overload in terms of, uh, you know, of things dancing around on the slides and stuff, because the children's working capacity and what they can handle in terms of their cognitive load is quite small anyway. So actually by scaling it back again, you're increasing the impact. And this is where we've got to kind of be always looking at what actually has an impact we will do that and we will do no more. Mm, just a breakout question that caught sort of kind of coming towards the end of this this part of the of the podcast now, but one of the things I definitely got wrong early in my teaching career was, was the balance of, of, of working and, and life. I had I had the wrong I I was working like like Josh alluded to, seventy hours a week. And but I didn't recognise it at the time. It's only now reflecting on it that I that I know that that was not the right thing to do. So uh, if I could come to Dan first, how do you recognise if you're getting the balance wrong? If there's a period of time in school where you think, actually, I'm doing too much here, how do you recognise that? And what do you do to kind of re-establish the balance? Um, that that really kind of hit me in my first first year, um, that when it actually then came to the holidays, I had no energy to do anything. And so that time when actually I should have been able to have the time to go out and see my friends and go on day trips or go on holidays, I just did not have the capacity to be able to get myself out of bed. And I needed all of that time to then recuperate so that I was ready for the next for the next half term. Um, and sometimes, especially after those half terms, especially the, the, the autumn term with how long it is, that that week and that those first couple of years after that week, I wasn't ready to go back because I was like, I need some more time to to actually completely rest and uh, kind of let go of the the term that has just been. Um, so it's, it, that was when I kind of like realised that there was an issue, and then it's it's just taking those little steps. Like, well, everything that we've been speaking about before is trying to find those ways to to be more efficient, to be um more effective but without having to increase the workload and using other people to kind of talk about making those plans that that is how i would then go about like readdressing the the work-life balance but it was it was it was whenever it came to holidays or even weekends that if if i did not have the energy to to do anything then i knew that i'd actually uh, overspent that week yeah, that's definitely something that I think a lot of teachers find in, in the first few days. You quite often hear about a lot of teachers who will be sick early in the holidays because their body will just almost like completely shut down. What are your thoughts on this, Jade? How have you, because I know, you know, you and I both struggled with, with the balance when we when we first started. So how, how do you recognise it in yourself now? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Uh, you know, early days, I couldn't recognise that the balance was wrong. And it took someone else going, you know, what what do you do? What what do you do other than your job? And someone like sort of making that like abrupt comment where I had to step back and think, God, yeah, I don't do anything for myself anymore. And I used to. Um, I'm quite visual. So for me, I need to keep myself accountable. So, you know, going into school in the earlier days, I do wish I'd have had someone who'd have chased me out of the building or someone who would have gone, 
what are you doing at this weekend for you? And, you know, when I said, oh, I'm going to be getting this sorted for next term, they'd have gone, no, what, what are you going to do for yourself? I wish, I wish I'd have had that person. But for me now, um, I, I use an app. I use an app called Habit. It's, it's a nice little visual one. It goes by colours and percentages. And I've set out things that I want to make sure I've done within the week. So, for example, um, go to the gym three times, do X, Y, Z three times, do, you know, read twice a week or something. I need that sort of tick off to go for what will work. So bring this last bit together then. Uh, we've covered some amazing stuff. We've talked about making lists, doing whole class feedback to reduce some of the marking, magpieing, understanding ourselves and when we're efficient with our own time, trying to create independent children, eating the frog, making plans for outside of school. But if you had one tip, Dan, one tip for establishing a work-life balance, your top tip, what would it be? Uh, what, uh, um, the one thing to have a work-life balance is to know that it's what you've done is enough. Um, and so that go out and have some fun. Excellent. Jade? Right, well, I suppose we should introduce our teacher top tip, uh, top tip for the week, the TTT, that's hard to say that. Um, for me, my best work-life balance tip for someone is to know that your classroom doesn't have to be a showroom, it's more of a building site and a construction zone. So I don't like to spend any time laminating, I hate it, so I won't do it unless it's strictly necessary. Um, I love a flashy display, who doesn't? But I also don't think that's the best use of my time personally. If it's yours, that's great. Um, but I love a working wall. I like children to take responsibility for what's on that wall, so to have that discussion and to do it with me. Um, I like to make sure that I'm not wasting time on things that don't need time. I know that at the end of the day, my children aren't going to spend a lot of time admiring, you know, something I've spent six hours on in my... Um, one of my first years of teaching, I built I built an igloo for an Alaska topic out of four hundred milk bottles. Um, <laughs> I washed I washed wow. them, I double washed them. You know, I built it and um, made a beautiful reading corner. It could fit three kids in. There was penguins. There was all sorts. But at the end of the day, it, it stank like milk for weeks in my classroom. And I could have used that. You know, ten hours I spent making it across three days doing something a lot more efficient. So I think. Lower your standards a bit. Go for the fact that it's going to be like your children making progress. Your classroom should show that. Um, and a gallery wall in your classroom isn't necessarily going to be motivational or something that the children use or look at. Top tip, don't build an igloo. There we go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And we've got a question this week, Adia. Yep. So one of my friends, Matt from um, Ireland, but he lives in Australia. Hi, Matt. Hope you're listening. Um, I should hope so. Um, he went through the bachelor's route where he spent three years training to be a primary teacher. And he said to me, Jade, is one year of teacher training as a master's enough? Well, uh, I, I can only speak from my experience and, and I will be interested to hear from Dan on this because, Dan, you've got quite an interesting route into becoming a primary teacher as well. But um, for me, I think, yeah, absolutely, it definitely is. What one year teacher training definitely was enough for me. I felt very prepared. I thought our training was was excellent. We actually, you know, in terms of being in school four days a week, I felt like that was my NQT year 
Uh, I felt like I learned a lot. I felt like I developed through the mistakes that I was allowed to make in the classroom. I think having lots of different routes into teaching is great. If we all went through the same process, we'd all come out very similar with very similar knowledge, very similar skill sets. So actually having the teach first route, the school direct route, the traditional program, giving people options uh, goes back to a little bit of, of what we talked about last week. It allows for a diverse set of people to come into teaching because, you know, all the different degrees that people have done uh, beforehand, before they do their one year teacher training, um, will will give them all different backgrounds and different knowledge sets. We've got people who teach abroad first, teaching English as a uh, an additional language to, you know, to Chinese children or whatever, like Josh did. Um, I, I think definitely, yeah. I don't know what you guys think. Well, I don't think that I'd be a better teacher if I did the three-year route, and I don't knock that route at all. You know, we've got many friends who have done that route, but I think for who I am as a person, I much, much would have rather and much enjoyed what ended up being a very very intense year of training for four days a week being in university one day a week because actually the university sessions and the pedagogy we learned there was all very well and interesting but I actually much preferred Monday to Thursday being in school because I, I learn by doing I'm not necessarily someone who benefits from sitting in a two-hour lecture about science when I know I've taught a science unit that week and I've developed really good chat and practice with a mentor and I've had time to look through methods and just give it a go really and I think that worked for me and I think belonging to a home school gave me an opportunity to learn about wider school life as well rather than going into a placement for six weeks being able to offer some help for that time but then bowing out to do something else somewhere else I think you know in my first year where I was training I ended up I ran an art club I joined in with some of the sports stuff I shadowed within the PTA I did all sorts and that that was really beneficial for me and it actually gave me a really good insight to what sort of teacher I wanted to be and also what sort of things I'm interested in pursuing outside of the classroom within school too so you know I ended up doing PTA for many years it's something I'm going back into in my new school you know I've had a dab hand at a few clubs I remember our very unsuccessful run as a football manager's with the yeah. squad. I wouldn't yeah. I wouldn't have had any of that otherwise. So, you know, I credit that to being in a school for a long time. We were all right when we had uh, that certain footballer who played for, for Liverpool, but apart when he left, we were struggling. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts, Dan? Because obviously you're you're secondary trained but now a primary school teacher. So what are your thoughts on this? Um I like I wasn't ready to after my PGCE to go into a primary setting. Um, and I think that's I think that's one thing that should potentially be looked at because actually the skills that you learn as a secondary teacher are completely different to that of a primary teacher. Um, like I remember going in and then being like, what are you uh, teaching drama where like you've got kids and you don't have tables and you've got a huge space and you're doing everything practical to then have 30 expectant faces sat behind desks or sat on a carpet looking up at you, expecting you to teach them how to read, was not something that I was in any way ready for. Um, and so like that year was so incredibly difficult um, to kind of get my head around everything. But I think, I think that it depends on the school that you're at and the provision that the school has for you. Because I don't think everyone gets the same experience that whatever school they're in, they get different experiences. And there are some schools that 
um, provide exceptionally well for um, new teachers in their schools, give them the support, give them the time out of class, allow them to go and observe other um, teachers, go and let them go see other schools and do all of that. But there are some schools that it's a case of like, oh, NQTs, they're cheap. Um, we can get them in. Um, we're we're running by the kind of the, the string of our pants right now, um, and we we just need we're we're, we're short staffed, so we need these teachers in, and so they're they're not actually ready to give the support that new teachers need, and that actually that it I think it should perhaps almost be like a phased out support thing, like rather than just being a, a year of full support, but gradually like in, in the your second year of teaching, there's still that extra bit of support, someone there still kind of watching like someone that you know that you can go and speak to if you've got an issue or you're like I'm not quite sure how to to deliver this I've not taught this before and I don't know how to or I've got this tricky child um and then that gradually phases out until you're then in a position to be able to mentor and support other members of staff because I know that I definitely would have benefited if I like having a um a person that I could go to about anything for a, a good couple of years at least yeah, I agree with yeah, you there, no, Dan, and actually, yeah. um, sorry, Martin, that leads no, me to, um, so when I joined my school in Melbourne last year, I've, I'm an experienced teacher, I've been in, you know, education since 2012-13, um, but when I arrived at that school, I was assigned a mentor straight away, and it, was a, it wasn't a, you know, we need to check on you, it was, you're new to a school, we run at 100 mile an hour, there's so much going on, we're across five different buildings, we're across roads, you know, we've got a huge staff body, a huge student body. You're going to need some support. This is your person to go to. And it was um, a woman called Virginia. She was my year group colleague in the end. And you know what? Having her there to guide me as an experienced teacher was hugely um, impactful. And it meant I settled in really well. And it's something that I would recommend to all schools to have for sort of people either new to the school or fairly new to the pre- profession still is if they need that someone, give them that someone someone who's willing to guide and someone who's willing to support not just as a friend but also just someone who you go right there's something I need to talk about I don't know who would be my first port of call because it's not something like safeguarding where you know I need to go to someone specific and having that person for me was a fantastic experience. I I think that generally you know from my experience the the quality of teacher training that's out there regardless of the route that you you take seems to be pretty good where I think the problem is, is the continued professional development once you are employed mm. as a teacher. It's almost like you've done your training, that's it. You don't need to you don't need to be upskilled anymore. I think you know what this morphs into is a different question for me about well, what are we doing once teachers become teachers and are employed as teachers to continue their development both as teachers and as people who are, you know, trying to learn a new job in, in really challenging circumstances. So having mentors is great, but what else is, is in there? I think that's a, a bigger question rather than what route are people taking into teaching? I think you've got another episode for us there, Martin. <laughs> we just need to keep making them as much as, as much as we possibly can. But I think this is a great opportunity to sort of say, Thanks to Dan for his thoughts and his opinions. Uh, you know, as I've said quite often in this episode, Dan is, is somebody who has a wonderful uh, efficiency in the classroom in order to, to, to maintain that balance. And we've certainly learned a great, a great deal from having you on this morning, Dan. So thanks very much for joining us. No, thanks very much for having me. It's been, it's been brilliant. So, yeah, brilliant. And if anyone's got any thoughts and opinions on on the routes into teaching or the continued professional development for teachers, we'd be happy to to hear those uh, on Instagram at Teacher Podcast. 
you think that went? No, I enjoyed it again. The last, the, the all four episodes have been great, but um, I made a little list as we were going, you know, in keeping with my new list keeping self. And I've got nine things there that we sort of came up with that um, would help establish or maintain a work-life balance. So I think if people pick up one or two of those things and it can help save anybody even five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day, uh, I would feel good about that. So yeah, I enjoyed it. And, and you know, massive thanks to Dan for joining us and, and to Matt for sharing his thoughts and his question. Um, and for everybody who's continued to listen, um, I, I, I don't know about you, but I feel like we're doing pretty well. Um, but it's only because people are kind of being positive and nice about it that, um, that, we're, that we're in this position. So I'm very grateful to everyone who's been listening as well. Yeah, the support's been immense. And, you know, this was just kind of an idea we had a few weeks ago. And, you know, we're already getting towards, you know, five episodes in. And people have been really good. Feedback's been really positive because we're learning how to do this as we go along, essentially. And, you know, we've already got listeners in nine different countries, which I think is, like, amazing in terms of the reach that we've got so far. And we can only thank people for continuing to share and encourage. Um, So it's been great. And I've been really excited about it. And it's actually been... A really positive experience for me in lockdown to have something to look forward to yeah and definitely and i think as well just for my own engagement and profession my own development you know find myself looking at things reading things watching things you know just to be ready for for the podcast so i actually feel like you know from that side of things that it's helping me to develop as well which is amazing um yeah i think like you say for development as well so the school i've just joined one of the year five topics for computing is podcasting and radio production and um, so this for me is perfect practice for me to be able to teach and I'm looking forward to you know the summer term next year where I do get to deliver that unit with the children and actually have some prior insight and knowledge into the work it takes and what sort of things to look at so that feels good for my own development and you can um, see probably sorry you can see how we've kind of maybe changed and evolved a little bit as well because I think if we were doing this when we first started teaching we'd have been editing it re-recording it you know for hours and hours and on and at the moment we were just literally recording publishing taking the feedback trying to you know just get it done and get it out there Uh, I don't think we would have done that when we first started I think we would have tried to make it absolutely perfect from it from episode one you know in that when you think about that pursuit of perfection that we talked about earlier uh, I think it shows how we've maybe changed a little bit over time yeah, I don't know if you remember, but we had a guy who used to come into our old school um, and he also went into Matthew Arnold's when we were training and he was, he'd was he been an Ofsted inspector and he used to like absolutely boom out the words good is good enough. Do you remember who I'm talking yeah. about? Um, and that's what I'm going for. Good is good enough. We're trying our best with it, so it's good. Anyway, speaking on to things being good, things not being good, things maybe requiring improvement, um, we're finally coming towards, you know, the team waiting for and by we all I mean just me and you episode five would you like to take her away yeah I mean this is basically you know all those four episodes before and you know we're very grateful for them but the only reason we really wanted to make a podcast was for this episode um, and if we get this episode <laughs> next one out there then we can kind of consider ourselves to be a success so this one is the is the, the one that Jade referring to is the Hogwarts special uh, I, I would like to take this time to remind everybody that Jade called me a Slytherin um, earlier in our in our podcast career um but basically what we're going to talk about next next week jade is that that ofsted would place hogwarts into special measures 100 percent, and i've got a lot of thoughts about it uh, yeah me too i mean you know even you know, straight away my thought about having you know somebody who was expelled from school living by a forest outside the, the school um with hagrid's 
you know, and inviting them around for tea. Yeah, previous track records. Um, I'm not sure he would be CRB approved. And then just giving him a job, you know, no teacher qualifications, just just employ him yeah, um, as a teacher. Uh, you know, there's a lot there to, to to get into, and I can't wait to get into it. But you know, uh, Hogwarts is not gonna not gonna come out of it favourably when Ofsted visit. I don't think. Absolutely, and it's the only time you will catch me being an Ofsted inspector. So this is the one. Yeah, tune in next time for uh, Ofsted would place Hogwarts in special measures. See you soon.